Hello and welcome to Anarchy SF Podcast, the podcast companion to the Anarchy SF website. My name is Yanai and with me is... Eden. Hello. How's it going? It's going well. And Eden, I, you look a little bit different today. It seems like you're wearing two hats. Two hats? Yeah. One is a science fiction expert and one is a music reviewer critic guy. Ah, now my, my power is over 9,000. Yes. <laughs> so we're going to talk about an album today, and maybe you should explain your credentials on the topic. Yeah, so I also run a music blog called Heavy Blog is Heavy, which started off as a metal blog, but now we cover music of all sorts. And I wrote an extensive series of posts on today's albums, album, sorry, analyzing the lyrics and the concepts, which even landed me um, somewhat of a friendship relationship with the band which is always nice i guess that's it cool so the album we're going to talk about is splendor and misery Mm -hmm. and we're also going to throw in some stuff from a single called the deep that was by clipping by the way by yes uh, by the band clipping how would you characterize their music style so they are experimental noise hip-hop that's usually how they get classified it might be better to just explain like the people who are part of the band. Okay. So you have David Diggs, who listeners might know from Hamilton, where he played Jefferson. And his acting career is also taking off. He was in Unbound, did a really good role there. But he's also playing in the American rendition of Snowpiercer. Oh. He plays the main character. Yeah. And he has been in a few movies in the recent few years, and his notoriety and celebrity is growing. So he is a rapper, hip-hop artist, but then he also has William and Jonathan, who are electronic producers. They also have some background in metal. I've spoken to them about this before. They like death metal and, and stuff like that, but they also do a lot of electronic work, and specifically stuff from techno and noise. So when you put those two things together, you have a hip-hop artist working with these two producers who create samples and sounds and beats to go with his music. He writes, I don't know if it's all or like a crushing majority of all of the lyrics. And he's also had a career before clipping in music. He's released a few albums under his own name. And clipping actually began in 2009 as a remix project where William and Jonathan took acapellas of mainstream rap artists and made these noise mixes. And that got David's attention and they started collaborating and became a band. Cool. And I will say my experience with the band is I think a lot of times to get into a new genre, you need like a point of entry. So for example, I I got into metal by hearing Blind Guardian, you know, sing about Tolkien and I really liked Tolkien. So like that was my point of entry. And Clipping was definitely sort of my transition from metal to enjoying hip hop and rap because a lot of it is like very heavy i think even for hip hop and rap that often get heavy themselves and it helped yeah. me understand like what the beats are supposed to do like how to enjoy that kind of music while also sort of mm-hmm. enjoying the kind of aggravating style and general kind of uplifting aggression if you could say yeah welcome to a club there's a lot of crossover these days between metal and hip hop and there are a few vectors of crossover, and one of them is through this noise, power electronics kind of vibe, because they channel the same kind of abrasiveness 
yeah. and distortion that metal often has in different ways, but it's kind of coming from similar places. So there's a lot of people who got into hip-hop from clipping and also Death Grips, or the other like major band in this channel. And like metal, which is something that I've also explored on the blog, clipping have a lot of interest in science fiction, which is also true for metal. Yeah, especially starting from this album, I think. Like, that was kind of the transition into that style of writing. Am I right? Yeah, I mean, this is the first time they've blatantly, like, talked about science fiction concepts, but their music has in the past had, you know, themes and ideas and references to some more horror, like body horror stuff, but they've been adjacent to the genre, but certainly Splendor and Misery is so blatantly science fiction that it's the great break into science fiction. And from speaking to David, he's just like a huge, huge nerd, like huge science fiction nerd. And all these references are like... So I want to get something out of the way because it's like a shallow point of discussion, but I can't not mention it. The references, just the name drops on this album are absolutely insane. Oh, I, like, I have a point about that. So we'll, we might get into that. Cool. I just want to like quickly say that the first time that I heard Kefa Hoochie tracked, on the album, which is a reference to M. John Harrison's Light. Yeah. I, I made you read that book, right? Yeah. I had to, like, triple check the lyrics. I was like, impossible. There's no way <laughs> some, like, hip-hop artist that I happen to know has read... I mean, M. John Harrison is, like, a science fiction writer's writer, right? He's not mega famous, but people who are in the know really, really love him, and he's amazing and experimental and weird, and it was just insane to hear his like concepts on an album alongside with Ursula Le Guin and Samuel Delaney and a bunch of other people that Octavia Butler of course so there's just a ton of really good references to science fiction works on this album yeah so I'm going to spoil the plot of the album if that's a thing you can do so I don't know I don't think anyone listens to an album to try to figure out the plot so basically it starts with a slave revolt where one person survives the revolt, and that revolt happens in space on a spaceship that's supposedly transferring slaves from one point to another. And yeah. after that slave revolt, one former slave remains the only person on board. He bonds with the spaceship that was originally meant to transfer him to his life as a slave, but now yeah. the spaceship's AI kind of falls in love with him, and they try to escape pursuit and they end up kind of in uncharted territory and the kind of depressing end is that they can't find another planet to land on or anything. So it seems like he'll be on this spaceship forever. I want to challenge a few things here. Yeah. One, the way I read it is that he is the only one who revolted and the spaceship killed everyone else just to stop him. And that is part of the guilt that he feels okay. because he cost all these people their lives. And he's like the only one who could, for some reason, survive the gas. And we'll talk a bit more about that in a sec. Like the gas that the ship pumped in order to kill all the slaves and not let them revolt. And the second thing, I would contest that it's a depressing ending. I think that definitely there's no resolution to the story. But I think that Clipping make here a gesture towards that common trope of there's a place for everything in space. Right? Like space is infinite. If you have the means to go there, you can find a place to express yourself and be who you are, free of oppression, just because space is so big. It definitely doesn't happen on the actual story, but I think there's the 
potential there for freedom. That's a good reading. I I have a point about the ending, so let's let's plug that reading because I couldn't figure out. Like I, I was telling myself, like this ending is too depressing to be making the point I think it's making. So maybe yeah. your reading fits in better. Okay, so that's the kind of science fiction we see here, and this is a prime example of what is often called Afrofuturism. So do you want to explain the mm-hmm. phenomenon? Yeah, I mean, Afrofuturism is a political, cultural, and sociological movement that started in the 50s and the 60s, and drew a lot of its aesthetics from the hippie movement, but wasn't necessarily part of the hippie movement, which focuses on reimagining the future under a decolonial gaze. We spoke about decolonialism last time. It's this idea that it's not enough to just be post-colonialism. You have to actively root out colonialism from your perspective. And the way it's done here is that instead of theorizing about the future as egalitarian, where all races are equal, it goes one step further and says, what if the main aesthetic and the main culture is derived from African roots? rather than Anglo-Saxon roots. Where it meets the hippie movement is that it has a lot to do with, you know, self-ascension, opening your mind, a psychedelic kind of color palette. And it also, you know, has the same narrative of liberation and a new flowering, the age of Aquarius and all that stuff that the hippie movement had. So it's been explored in music before, most famously by Sun Ra, an incredible jazz, funk, soul artist who also wrote really expansive and famous space operas that were Afro-futuristic and reimagined the future through African eyes. And then, of course, you have Octavia Butler and, more recently, you know, people who see themselves as her, the continuing generation of Afrofuturism. So Afrofuturism has seen sort of a renaissance in the past few years. There have been many books that, even if they weren't explicitly Afrofuturistic, yeah. they were published by Afrofuturistic authors. And clipping kind of like feed into that resurgence of Afrofuturism. Yeah, and we've discussed a couple of times before this idea that science fiction always has like this protagonist point of view, this like, from whose eyes are we going to see the world? And I think, I mean, the most basic critique in Afrofuturism is why don't we see the future? Why do we always see the future from the eyes of white people, white men? And what is it going to be like to look at the future from the eyes of a black person? And I think it's trying to also like inject a lot of history and meaning into that idea. So whereas the white point of view, again, by white authors, is always sort of devoid of history, like it lacks this whole dimension of containing history within them, I think there's yeah. a lot of history within people in Afrofuturism. So that's a really interesting point, and I'm like riffing over the way that you wrote it in our document, where it draws an interesting loop, right? Because it looks into the future, but it says, let's also look into the past and draw from a different past, right? Instead of just reaching back and finding, you know, inspiration in Japanese culture, for example, which is often, the, you know, the basis yeah. for a lot of science fiction, or Anglo-Saxon culture, it says, what about... African stories. So in the album, I think the best example is True Believer, yeah. where you know David sings about this myth of Genesis and how the world was created. And instead of like God, you know, Genesis or the even more common 
Anuma Alish, you know, where the sky and the sea merge or some sort of Amaterasu Japanese thing, he's telling an African story, right? Where there's like three siblings and one of them poisons the other and he vomits the sun and then, you know, the moon and the stars and animals come and, and stuff like that. And there's a really interesting line there. And man of many use the white one in the image of a sickly god would get his dues. Which is like, there's two ways to read that. There's one, he will become the ruler, the white one, right? Which is obviously, you know, white people. Or he would become the ruler, but then we'd pay him back, right? Like we'd rise up and he would lose in the end. Yeah. I mean, this is based on like actual creation myth where in many tales, African tales, you know, the, the white god is the devil, mm-hmm. right? That's like their version of, of how the devil looks. By the way, should have opened with this when you say africa that is extremely misleading yeah, of course right like africa over the years and the centuries has obviously been home to literally hundreds of cultures in fact it's like one of the most fragmented you know geographical entities on the planet and always has been so when we say african you know just keep in mind that we're not experts and there's obviously flavors between tribes and nationalities and histories and, and myths and stuff like yeah, that. yeah and i think to write um, this song to write true believer they had to focus on a creation myth maybe they could have you know taken from a couple right so they chose one but i think and they chose one that has like elements that fit within their story but there was a lot of selection to choose from yeah and what they do on this verse actually that i just quoted a bit earlier is really interesting because they explicitly tie themselves into that african afrofuturism renaissance we just spoke about because so those two siblings one is Enefa and one is Bamba so Bamba is the creator god in the mythology of a tribe called Kuba in Central Africa uh-huh. but Enefa is the god from N.K. Jemisin's The Inheritance Trilogy which is a science fiction book and N.K. Jemisin is one of those you know people who see themselves as the next generation of Octavia Butler to the extent that she I think she edited or she wrote for an anthology called Octavia's Brood, oh, yeah. right, where she collected and contributed to Afrofuturistic science fiction. So David is like saying, hey, I'm of this movement, right? This is part of this Afrofuturistic science fiction revival, which is incredibly interesting. Yeah. So it's interesting to talk about True Believer. I want to start with this idea of like what time does in this album. And I actually want to start with an idea from queer theory called Queer Time. So. Mm-hmm. This idea has been theorized a couple of times, but like the sort of philosophical term of queer time comes from an author called Jack Halberstam. The idea that he writes is that basically queer people have a different perception of time. Why is that so? Well, heteronormativity has like this trajectory through life. You're born, you go to school, you get your education, you get a career, you get a wife, you get, I mean, you get a wife if you're a man, right? And you get married, you get children, and then you die. It's very, like, set in stone. And his idea is that this has never been an option for queer people. So when you are queer, from the first moment, you sort of realize that that's never going to be an option for you. Because a lot of careers weren't open for a lot of queer people, and uh, some still aren't. And then marriage wasn't always a possibility. And even if marriage is a possibility, you're always going to be sort of like an exception. And there's like the idea of what marriage even is, is different in the queer community. So what happens is that you get all of these representations that sort of order the life of a heteronormative person. And then when you're queer, 
you have n- nothing to sort of relate to. And yeah. and this actually comes from a question I heard in a, a talk, like someone raised this idea. I don't think it's been written about yet of taking that idea into philosophy of race. And I think in a sense, this album is doing it because it's saying time works really differently or time does really different things in the life of this person. Who's, yeah. what's his name? It's, uh, I mean, he's called Cargo 2331. Number 2331. Yeah. I mean, he has a superpower, right? Like, and all of them have superpowers. So the background of the story, like the lore of the setting is that white people are enslaving black people because black people can store time inside of their body. Yeah, I have, the, I have right? a quote like, here. It's raised to find this race of beings that could handle time inside their bodies so they could sell it. Right, so they ship them around, and I think it's something to do... Obviously, this is an album, right? So we don't have long exposition and all these explanations, right? But they ship them around in light speeds, and then because of the time dilation something happens to their bodies and they store the lost time, right? And then they arrive at the destination and that time can be consumed maybe to prolong life or to keep the empire that is doing all of this going. And what happens here is really interesting. And I really agree with this idea of queer time because David basically asks the question, you know, what if time but too much, right? Like what if this person got so fucked up on time because he keeps zipping around in FTL Right, running away from the man, running away from slave catchers, basically, that he somehow breaks the mold, right? That's what happens, right? Because in the beginning, in All Black, and then later on in the album, he's zipping around. And if you recall what he says in Eremout, don't let a motherfucker catch you sleeping at the wrong sun. So he's like zipping around suns, ambushing, raiding, running away. And while he's doing that, you know, in, in tracks like Baby Don't Sleep and stuff like that, you see how he's constantly cryophrozen more and more time until something breaks and he kind of like falls off the timeline. And that's where I think a better place comes in, right? He like says, okay, he struggles with the past. He keeps thinking about his history and there's lyrics to say that, right? Keeps remembering like the cul-de-sac where he grew up and his mother and all of his like racial history and stuff like that. And at some point he says, fuck it. Just set a coordinate somewhere out in space and start jumping, right? And maybe we'll go so far in space and in time that we'll somehow find an alternate future, right? A future where slavery is no longer the norm and I can rest. And that's a really interesting point and so clever on David's part because it's so like an escaped slave historically, right? The problem with being an escaped slave in America, let's say, is that everywhere you go, you're black. Yeah. Right? And then people ask questions like, why is a black person walking around? Where is your owner? So a freed slave, or an escaped slave rather, has to run away. Like, use the um, Underground Railroad, go to Canada, or go to one of those, what's called maroon communities, where slaves are independent by force of arms. And so on. So it's the same thing here, right? He's running away because he's an escaped slave and he's looking for a place where there's a different future and a different version of history that allows him to finally rest. Yeah, so I think what's interesting about like the way a slave is used for the time that's contained in him, that can be in a science fiction way of like, you know, what you said about storing time in, in this kind of interesting way. Or it could be in the mundane way of slaves are used for labor. They do things so that other people won't have to do them. Yeah. So yeah. 
that's like the premise. And then what I think the album is saying is this transition sort of warps them in time and it connects past, present, and future in really interesting ways. So the first thing you said about, or the first thing I'll answer to something you said, is that a runaway slave always has his past within him. And that's from All Black. Everything they say, no matter how much time or space has passed since his escape, he's still a runaway slave and so lonely. So yeah. the past will always be within him. He sort of doesn't get to kind of reinvent himself, even by going on this like spaceship ride, right? And then another interesting thing about the future is that, obviously, his hope is in the future, because he's living in terrible times where his people are being enslaved. but that future is not for him. It's for yeah. other people. So there's a really mm-hmm. sad line in Long Way Away that says, but look to the stars where the sun is long gone and pray that your children do not sing this song. Yeah, and Long Way Away, all those interludes that use the a cappella are all based on actual slave songs, by the way. So the band just researched, they actually used archives and books on slave songs to really nail that feeling yeah. and it does such a cool again that mix between present past future all that spirituals stuff. they're called like this style is called spirituals. spirituals exactly exactly oh well that's the most important thing about spirituals is that they will often encoded with instructions to escape slave you know the guards and the plantations yeah. and one last interesting thing is that well, I say one last, but like, there's so much in this album, we, we won't get to all of it. It's just like we're highlighting a couple <laughs> of interesting things. Yeah. So a lot of yeah. uh, rap and hip-hop references other rap and hip-hop. Like That's part of the way this style works. Yeah. So the thing. one in- yeah. <laughs> interesting thing, actually from The Deep, not from this album, is the line, y'all remember how deep it go, started from the bottom. Which is really interesting because it's referencing yeah. Drake's song, Started from the Bottom, Now We're Here. And... I mean, there's so many of these on, on the album, right? I mean, Kendrick Lamar is like yeah. called out by name. And a specific verse that he sings on, God, what's his name? The guy who did Control, Big Sean. And there's references to, you probably yeah. think this, this song is about you. There's so many really cool like lines so on in, this album. in the deep, the idea of like referencing started from the bottom, I think it's trying to say, okay, you reach some kind of success, but... Like, that success doesn't sort of cancel out the innate problem. It doesn't sort of solve everything. Even if you start from the bottom and you get to a good place, you know, it goes deeper than that. And so I think it's even more than that. And it's even angrier and more critical because I think that what it says is, oh, you started at the bottom and now you're on top. But where are your brothers? Right? Drake and Jay-Z, and all these insanely popular rappers, one of the main criticisms that's being levied against them is that they sold out, right? And by becoming a capitalist, they also became subservient to white supremacy, right? And quoting Lenin, you cannot have capitalism without white supremacy, right? A capitalist is necessarily a racist. Right? Or, or was that Thomas Sankara? Yeah. Some, some communist guy. Racism and white supremacy, especially in America, and capitalism go in hand in hand. And like, it's kind of a divergence, but just to nail it home, there was a story about two black people who were arrested for allegedly shoplifting in one of Jay-Z's stores in the <laughs> Upper West Side. And there was a lot of criticism because he didn't do anything to help them. It's like, okay, you sing all these songs about 
you know, or your partner does, you know, how I started up not, is nothing and now I'm here, but where's your loyalty? So I think what Clipping are saying is, yeah, you started from the bottom, but what about all the people you left behind in there, right? Why aren't you going back and making their and lives this, of course, connects better? to the um, situation of this escaped slave who escaped, but he's the only survivor, right? He's the only one who made it through. Yeah, it's like, I really think that, you know, what you said about you can't leave it behind, like the present and the past are inside of you, is again going back to like, unsurprisingly, because we're both yeah. postmodernists, right? This like second thread that has been running through this entire podcast is the body, right? And the importance of the body to science fiction and to power and politics. And it's here again, right? Like time is inside of your body. Your history is written on your body. And if you go to the deep, that's actually there in the yeah. most biological sense. Because the story of the deep is women who are thrown overboard during the slave trade by the way, don't ever forget that that happened and that people did that to people. White people did that to black people. They threw them overboard because they were pregnant, right? And babies were nothing but a burden on the slave economy. So the mothers died, but the babies survived and adapted to the deep. I won't go too far into this, but this actually references an album from a techno group in the 80s in Detroit. But they took that concept and like fleshed it out. And they also collaborated with an author whose name I can't believe I forgot on a book. Now, Splendor and Misery was nominated for the Hugo Award for Best Dramatic Presentation. But the book that was influenced by The Deep and The Deep itself actually won. Yeah, River Solomon is the name of the... River Solomon, right. And they kind of like elaborated on this idea. So the idea there is that their physical bodies changed. They're like half fish. Yeah. Right? And if you go even further, their most recent album, There Existed an Addiction to Blood, which is a horror-based concept album, a loosely concept, there it's like even more touching on ideas of the body, you know, like horror always does, dismemberment and resistance and drinking of blood. and yeah, Somewhere between horror and like dark fantasy, I think. Yeah. I mean, if you told me that David wrote this about World of Darkness, yeah, I would not be surprised at all. I should ask him, by the way. Maybe I'll do that. So this idea that the body is, and I'm going to use a postmodernist term, a locus of resistance. Yeah, a site right? or like, a locus of resistance. Exactly, a site of resistance. So maybe we'll unpack that term. What, what does that mean? One of the ideas in postmodernism is to see how much our spatial perceptions influence our language and how we talk about things and how we conceptualize almost everything in terms of bodily relations, how far something is from you, how near it is, how much you feel it. Think about the term I can feel it in my bones, right? Yeah. So a site in postmodernism is this place where knowledge and power and culture and language and economy all intersect into this fuzzy idea, place of control, method of telling the body what to do and what not to do, right? And a site of resistance is that intersection and that place where you can push back against power. So I think clipping, you know, they have lots of sites of resistance inside the body. Your skin color, what you wear, how you talk, hurting yourself, hurting others, inflicting violence, and so on. Yeah, and there's a lot in this album where mundane actions on the body are considered. Like, there's a description in the beginning of what sedatives the ship might try to use to quell their uprising. Yeah. There's cargo number 2331 taking a shower, but... 
it's explained that he's only taking it out of habit, and there's the injecting different kinds of drugs. So actions on the body here are all significant, are all either representative of oppression or of resistance to oppression. Yeah, and it's like no time because there's so many things on this album, but there's also the whole interesting aspect of the AI and the robot body in relation to the biological body and how they differ and how they resist in different ways. But we won't get into it, but it's like that whole level of, you know, man-machine interface and what that does and why it's important for, you know, resistance and politics in general. I want to go back to something you mentioned and kind of like tee you up for your point. I think it's really interesting that what the ship injects into them is sedatives, right? Because they want to keep them dormant. They want to keep them docile. And there's this whole idea that resistance comes from a place of anger. Yeah. So what I wanted to talk about is basically a paper by a philosopher called Céline Leboeuf. And she's responding to a very famous scholar called Martha Nussbaum. No relation to the actual cannibal Shia Leboeuf? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) But Céline Leboeuf is black and I think Shia Leboeuf isn't. Yeah, I'm joking. Yeah, so Martin Nussbaum is a philosopher and a law scholar, whatever that is. And she wrote a book about anger. And in that book, she basically argues that anger is kind of a useless emotion in achieving justice, which is a strong claim that she obviously tries to support. And then Celine LeBeouf criticizes that approach. Uh, I'm kind of simplifying Martin Nussbaum realizes that anger can sometimes be useful, but like in general. And this is a very white feminism, black feminism kind of discussion, like, is anger useful? And Celine LeBeouf's point is that anger helps us resist oppression. And she takes experiences from a contemporary black philosopher whose last name is Yancey, I don't remember his first name, and from someone we've already mentioned on this podcast, Franz Fanon. And she kind of describes the bodily feeling of being oppressed as the feeling of shrinking. That's insanely interesting because that is actually Thomas Aquinas. Okay. The idea of anger and fear as a shrinking of the body is actually like a main tenant of Thomas Aquinas' theory of will. Yeah, it's in Equinus, and you can also see it in the Stoics, yeah. where there's contraction and then expansion in different uses, so that's appropriate. So the idea is that being oppressed causes someone to shrink, to try to minimize their interaction with the space, to, you mm-hmm. know, to behave themselves, and anger is an inherently expansive emotion. It makes you look outside, it makes you less self-conscious. It makes you sort of act automatically, which can be a good thing because it makes you more efficient. And basically, it makes you expand. Now, here's something interesting. Throughout this album, Cargo 2331 is always expanding. So he begins in lockdown. And then he releases himself from lockdown. And he has run of the spaceship, right? But he's still doing things like reciting biblical verses and taking showers, which are like putting yourself in a more confined space. And you see this in tracks like Air Em Out, where he's sort of, well, we'll talk more about Air Em Out, but it's 
kind of fantasy of being in control of, you know, running the place and jumping from system to system. And then it ends with the ultimate expansion, right? With being in uncharted territory, no one knows like where you'll go. No one's been here before. There is the roadmap for where to go. And this kind of echoes a quote from Franz Fanon, one of his chapters called The Lived Experience of the Black Man, with, yet, with all my being, I refuse to accept this amputation. I feel my soul as vast as the world, truly a soul as deep as the deepest of rivers. My chest has the power to expand to infinity. So I think Cargo 2331 is exactly expanding his chest to infinity, right? Through his power, he took control of this spaceship, and now he's going to take it anywhere in the infinite blackness of space. Yeah. And the one thing that I'll be happy if you can tie for me is that that didn't seem like a good ending for him. Like, that seemed like a kind of depressing ending for him. So maybe you can help me understand, like, how that's... So it's the trope of the golden path in Frank Herbert's Dune, right? Okay. It's the same thing. The idea in Dune, and not just in Dune, also in M. John Harrison and in Dan Simmons' Hyperion and in many other science fiction works, is that space, what it offers humanity, is a huge canvas to let our creativity and our diversity explode. Think about a biological system, right? It is contained by the size of its biome and those stresses that that size inflicts on it. So it won't, like, grow another appendage if it knows that the dome is too small, for example. So think about that as Earth, right? It's constantly curbing us as humans, constantly limiting us to, you know, gravity and oxygen and blue skies and the things that we know. But then once we go to space, we can explode outwards. So in Frank Herbert, the worry that, you know, Leto II, Paul's son and inheritor, is how can I keep humanity safe? Right now we're so close that if there's a war or some disease or some astronomical event, then we all die. The only solution is the scattering, right? To scatter humanity to the wide corners of the galaxy and let them evolve into new forms and let them proliferate and multiply until there is no one thing that can take us all out. If you think about that, that's also in Ursula Le Guin's Heinish cycle, where humanity scatters too much, something pays attention to us and slaps us back down. So I think that's the ending here as well. I don't think Eremat is a fantasy. Like He fights with this order, he kills them, but he always kills small players. Right? He kills riders. Riders are like the people in the hood actually peddling drugs or fighting with the police or fighting with gangs. Right? He goes and kills them, but he can never touch the bosses. He can never touch the people that run the show. And he's like ping-ponging across this galaxy. And like you said, he's starting to feel contained. And then suddenly he understands that the only solution is to let the dice roll, right? And in Better Place, there's the line about the roulette, right? The odds of the body of surviving the gravity shift, which are so low. And yet there's no choice but to let it go. And again, going back to time, who got time on a string on a finger? Nothing to remember but the passage of it. Who got time to let anything linger? Where it hovers, surely you will learn to love it. Who got time for this love shit anyway? Gotta survive. Isn't that mess enough for him? And he just lets go. He unties the knot, right? He says, I'm sick of paying attention to time. I'm sick of constantly, you know, 
while ships' clocks count millennia. I'm sick of looking at those clocks. Let's go. Right? And that's why the album ends with, are you ready to go? Right? Are you ready to go yet? Let's go. Are you ready to tie loose of, in the present, of your whiteness, of your blackness, of your limitations? And are you ready to let go and actually explore new ways of being? And inside the story, is the character ready to actually transgress, to actually trespass, to actually go beyond time and space and all that stuff and find a better place to be somebody, right? So there's no resolution because it doesn't end with the protagonist finding that place, but it does end with him saying, there must be a better place to be somebody else. Yeah, and we remember that this kind of solution is anyways not for him. It's a long way away. It's his children right. might not sing this song. It's Right. And I think, again, if you look at the lyrics, maybe it's this time-bound conscious that keeps him out pushing for nothing with only the hope brought on by this belief that there must be a better place to be somebody. Right? So for sure it's not a good ending because there's no victory, but it's a hopeful ending in the sense that victory must be possible if only we keep going. Yeah, and I think it's an appropriate amount of optimism. Yeah. We kind of live in a racist society. So there's a kind of feeling of, you know, whoever is the victim of this racism will never get to be born and live a full life in a non-racist society. Like, not being the descendant of slaves. You know, that no longer being relevant, that, you know, being distant past. Yeah, and it's also about not saying that racism is over, right? Understanding that it's a journey. And almost as if slavery never ended, well, it didn't, right? It transmorphed, but more on that maybe later. But the odyssey of African people is still ongoing. They're still looking for a place. They're still looking for peace and solitude and sanctuary in a society where they can live, right? And this is also referenced in the best track from the album after this, Blood of the Thang, where he says, 50 years, about enough, time to come back, which is a reference to the civil rights movement, right? We blew up 50 years ago. We marched on Seneca. We did the Martin Luther King thing. We won, but I think it's about time to go back. And I want to tie it back to what you said about expansion and shrinking. One of the things that black, well, specifically Black Lives Matter, but also other black movements do is hold workshops that teach white people how to stop everyday racism and how to help black people in every day. And one of the things they do is they teach you active defense. Active defense is how to protect a person of color with your body and not shrink away from authority. So one of the best examples on the internet is this group of operatives that are crashing a racist alt-right talk. And there's three white people and one black person and the white people just stand in front of the black person so that police can't get to him and the police won't do anything to those white people because they're white that's like not exaggeration that's how it works it's incredible so when a cop shows up and you can be i'm a progressive i'm a postmodernist i'm an anarchist whatever i believe in racial freedom i believe that you know israel is a fascist racist state and it should be destroyed and all that shit but when a a police officer with a gun stops me on the street. I'm the nicest guy on the planet because guess what? I don't want to get shot. Even though I'm probably not going to get shot because I'm Jewish and I'm white, right? It's frightening. And it takes training 
to not contract, right? To not yeah. fall back into the obedient, subservient role that this entire fucking society is built on instilling in you. Right? And that's my last point about this album in general and what it tries to say, and it ties into Blood of the Fang and the rest of the discography. Anger and violence are an inherent part of the revolution. And in some ways, it's David saying, will you stop quoting the fucking Martin Luther King quotes about peace and love and liberty and all that shit? Okay, the guy was all for a violent aspect of resistance, right? And on Blood of the Fang, you know, he quotes... Malcolm X and others, and one of the best lines from there is Queen Angela, done told you, grasp at the root, so what you're all talking about, hands up, don't shoot, right? And that's exactly, you know, what we're talking about here. And again, another quote from there, Brother Malcolm, done told you all by any means, so what you're all talking about, all on the same team. We are not all on the same team, and that goes also into Splendor and Misery, there is a violent aspect of the resistance on the album. You got to fight. Yeah. So the way that there existed an addiction to blood kind of sets the scene for that is that it's basically saying like this was always a violent situation. Like there existed an addiction to blood. It was always about violence. Yeah. How do you think that peaceful action is going to free us? You have to kind of understand the role of violence in this society as a way to achieve power. And, you know, we've also discussed in the podcast, like, the limitations of violence, but definitely there's sometimes a shying away from violence. And you said it's only Cargo 2331 that revolted and all the others were killed. Well, maybe 2331 was the only one willing to, you know, employ that kind of violence. Take it. Yeah, take it to the extreme. And that kind of resists the sedatives. The sedatives. That helps him, you know, fight against the sedatives and remain alive even though they were supposed to be lethal. Yep. So I want to kind of pivot on my last point. I don't have a good takeaway, but I want to talk about what belonging does here. And inherently, there's something in Afrofuturism about belonging, specifically belonging to science fiction. And this kind of enters at the beginning of the album with All Black Everything. So the kind of theme of All Black Everything is a lot of stuff are black in this so there's like a black kind of emotions and the space is black and there's depression and the skin color of the people is black or of the protagonist, right? And I think the you know most basic way of reading this premise is saying, you know, aesthetically, black people just fit into space because like it's the same color. <laughs> and <laughs> I mean, that's, I mean, it's half a joke, but it's how you sort of set up the theme of where are all the black people in these classic science fiction movies? Like, why are there so few of them when, I mean, in classic, I don't know, Star Wars or Star Trek, you know, and Star Trek was even kind of progressive by putting a couple of black people in and even having the first interracial romance on television. But still, like, it's mostly white people. And, you know, you have to ask, what do these people think would happen to black people in the future? Why are they not around? It's sort of like how... So Mel Brooks has this idea of Jews in space, which is yeah. basically saying, like, when we go to space, there will also be Jews there. <laughs> like, can we remember that? That everybody who is currently on Earth, we hope you're planning to also take them to space when we go to space. So that's the most basic point about belonging. Yeah, you know, it just speaks, again, it's the future talking to the present by saying, oh, the reason you don't put black people or Jewish people into space is because you don't see black people and Jewish people today, right? 
these people who write these shows and write these books or wrote these books lived a segregated life. You know, they did not have Jewish or black or Hispanic or Asian American or whatever friends. And if they did, they were like tokens, right? They had one or two or stuff like that. And even if they had more, the writing was for white people, right? Yeah. And so the future is absent of these minorities because the present is absent them as well, right? And I kind of want to give a counterexample that only when you start watching it do you realize how much it's missing in other places, and that's The Expanse, right? Where you have several main characters that are black. You have also white people that are usually not represented, like Afrikaans people, because the Delta's language is kind of Afrikaans. And you see working-class people, by the way. If you want to talk about Star Trek, it's like this... Gene Roddenberry libertarian delusion that yeah. in the future there will be no proletariat. And it's like, shut the fuck up. Like, who builds the ships? Right? Like, who builds... Okay, you have the thing that clones food and all that shit. Who builds those? Right? Like, they can re- replicate her. Right? They can replicate all the materials that you want, but someone has to assemble it. But no, those people are absent. In the expanse, you suddenly see miners, technicians, yeah. designers, Well, it's, it's what you always say about infrastructure space, right? Yeah, exactly. You see the infrastructure of actually living in space. And tying all this back to Splendor and Misery and clipping in general, the guy, the protagonist of this album is not some daring captain gifted with some sort of like genetic enhancements or like that. He's a guy, right? Like, and also it's important to say he's a guy from Earth who was yeah. like abducted or something like that. He's just a person. It's obvious why we didn't talk about Story 5, because it's kind of part of a meta album where they're telling this ongoing story. But it does have something to do with the album in the sense that Grace, the protagonist of Story 5, she takes pictures of workplace violations, right? And because she's going to report the foreman for those violations, she gets killed. Mm -hmm. So we won't go into the whole meta album and all that stuff. Also, it's ongoing and very weird, so I don't really know what's going on. But it's a nice touch where... The characters in Clipping's music are continuously, quote-unquote, normal people, right? Everyday people and not these, like, elite, whatever, you know, top-of-their-class guys. Yeah, and because of that, Cargo 2331, who maintains his name as Cargo, always with this question of, do I even belong here? He starts with, like, not knowing if he belongs, so quote from All Black Everything, if only he realized this this ship is more than metal, there's friendship in the wiring and so lonely. If only he realized this ship has many levels, there's pleasure in here hiding, come find it. Don't mind this frame. Time has made stranger bedfellows. So the idea is he doesn't feel at home on this ship, so he's not using all of its functionality. You know, he doesn't see himself as the rightful owner of this ship yet. So he doesn't know how to use all of it, right? So, and then the ship actually starts bonding with him. And I just want to end this point by talking about Aram Out. So Aram Out as a song is a very kind of tropey song in rap and hip hop. It's a song about, I don't know, is it called a drive-by song? Like it's, it's about... It's about killing people. It's about killing people of a a rival gang or something like that. So we take a tropey song. How many subversions are they going to put in it? I see three here. So mm-hmm. first version is just we take this song and we sci-fi it up, right? Instead of using cars and normal pistols, we're using laser guns and spaceships, 
right? Mm-hmm. So that's kind of a fun subversion of the trope. The second subversion is, and we can disagree on that. So seeing the video for this, the video for this song is David Diggs sitting at a table and kind of freaking out as things start to float, like he's not used to being in space, and he's singing this song to himself. So the way I see it, and I saw a couple of other people responding the same way, is this is kind of like a song he sings to himself to bolster himself as he's going through this kind of bad experience. So there's an idea here about how these songs, how these fight songs are actually about bolstering yourself up, maybe preparing yourself for a struggle you're going to have to do. So the second subversion is whether or not this is actually happening or is being a kind of self-empowering. And the third subversion is there's so this is the song with the most sci-fi references. Like they come in strong and they're more obvious than in other songs. So we have Kefauchi Tract, we have two references to Ursula Le Guin, we have mentioning of the ecumen and mentioning of the Ansible. So I was thinking why is this And Camel and Camel. The biological mating period from Left Hand of Darkness. Oh, so I I missed that. So many references, right? So the way I see it, this kind of like turf war is a turf war over representation in science fiction. He's basically saying, you know, this genre that has been dominated, and he mentions Kefauchi Tract, which is a, a kind of late work by Harrison, is that his name? M. John Harrison. M. John Harrison. But M. John Harrison is also considered part of the golden age of science fiction as more of an editor and from his earlier works. So he's kind of mentioning these, these white people who you know, dominated the genre and saying, we're coming for, for this genre. We're going... I don't, I don't agree with that at all. Okay. First of all, because you missed a few references. Frelk is from Samuel Delaney, who's black. Yeah. And the, all the, Frelk ass gotta pay for the milk. The whole, and, the whole name of the album is from Delaney, right? Right. Splendor and Misery is the lost sequel to Stars in My Pocket Like Grains of Sand that never came out. And actually, in A Better Place, where he says he's missing something pretty, he's missing where the earth is gritty, he's missing the splendor and misery of bodies of cities. That's the full title of that sequel that never came out. Yeah. He's missing it in the sense that he's missing the book. But also, where they got up in their O's like some fucking Owen Collies. The Owen Collie are the race that save Earth in Octavia Butler's mm-hmm. book. So I think there's like a good balance here between black and non-black science fiction. So I don't really see the, this has been white dominated for so long and, and we're coming for you. Especially because I know that he's like a really big also Le Guin fan and a big fan of all these writers. So I agree with the first two subversions. And I totally think that this track is a subversion, but I think the subversion is, yeah, he's killing these people, but ain't nobody dead, just some motherfucking riders. Right? That's the subversion. Like, you talk big talk, and you think you're an own Kali, and you think you're Kefahuchi tract or whatever, you're this big bad pilot, but you're just killing pawns. You're just killing, like, riders. You're not actually getting into the core of the problem and solving the, the solution. And, the last verse is all about that, right? Come up off your smooth talk, right? Like, stop, like, with the song. You're stuck on Morse code. This is ASCII. Your birthright makes you scared to get nasty. The keyword is camel. That's what your ass need. Like, you need to, you know, challenge your bodily perceptions. You need to channel them in, into more violence. It's like, it's time to step up, right? Yeah. It's not 
just about like taking out these small players. It's about, you know, going higher and actually fighting with the actual problems. So I kind of agree that it's a subversion. And yeah, the video is a big part of it. But I think it's more subversion of the big talk that this character is saying when he's just like, whatever, killing a few dudes, who cares? Okay, I can accept that. I'll think more about that. I definitely think that it ties into the sort of theme of belonging to sort of say, you know, all of these works of science fiction, maybe the kind of golden age versus Afrofuturism is a bit of a stretch. Maybe it's just like, you know, we can make these songs into science fiction, you know, yeah. as well. Like, look how, look how like- well we mesh into using all of these terms, you know, instead of using, like, the police, that would be, like, the threat in a classic song of this style, he says, because the ecumen ain't everything and these killers ain't playing. So it's like, you know, instead of saying the police aren't around, he's saying the ecumen aren't around. It's saying, like, look, we can take all of our tropes and just, like, inhabit this space, another way of performing belonging, I think. Yeah, I think the line about the ecumen is actually him saying, the ecumen are like peaceful and about knowledge and shit, but I'm not. Right? So the ecumen ain't everything that's out there, and these killers ain't playing. Right? I'm gonna kill you. I'm not gonna, you know, explore your culture and diversity and like get into your knowledge and stuff. I'm gonna show up and shoot you to death. <laughs> so I think it's kinda like a boast. But I definitely I definitely agree with what you said and like, hey, death of the author, right? Like if you read into this something else and I do, that's totally fine. Yeah, I think um, I think it's like just an interesting element of how kind of these works layer a lot of references upon each other and every you know it's also in the rhyming like a lot of words are part of different parts of the rhyming scheme so like there's just a lot molded over each other and we didn't even get into the thing where the keyword is camel is actually a reference to a previous interlude where there's a code in the sound i'm not joking like the codes in the sound and then you need to use Morse code because of the Morse code reference. And Camel is the keyword which deciphers the vignette that is hidden in the code. And it's like a whole sort of like meta thing that David always does with his stuff. And it's part of the meta album. Right? It's part of story and uh, the story that it's trying to tell. Yeah. So okay. this is like, these are the thoughts that we have time to get into right now. But yeah. if anyone listens to this and has stuff that we totally missed, get at us uh, on Twitter or something. And thank you for listening. Thank you. And if you ever want more quality anarchy science fiction, you're welcome to check out an expansive list in anarchysf.com. And thank you to Instar for the intro outro music and to Clipping for providing us with this album to talk about. Yep. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you another day. Bye. Bye.